Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We're glad you're able to be with us. So with that, turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning as we continue understanding what's happening in the story of Noah and the covenant that God makes with him. Chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly asking that we would understand this word that you have given for your people, that your spirit would give us understanding, that we'd understand how covenant obligations, how commands could possibly be blessings when so often the commands of the Lord seem to us to be burdensome and more like a curse. Help us to understand that as we walk through this text. Help us to understand what it is that you're doing in the life of Noah and his family in this typical new creation. Help us understand the context of that so we understand more clearly the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the blessings we know in him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, when we discussed the Noahic covenant last week, I stressed God's promises to patiently withhold judgment upon the world, to preserve the world, which is what you're seeing commands in line with here in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, God's preserving, patiently preserving of the world. But I stress that God patiently preserves the world from judgment so that... He might send the seed of the woman to save us from our sins. It isn't just that God looks at sinful man and says, you're wicked, I think I'll preserve you. He's just judged us. It's you're wicked, and if I continue judging as I did in the flood, then I will have to wipe out all of mankind, and there will be no keeping of the promise to send the seed of the woman to save you. So I will preserve you so that I might save you in him. Now, I argued for that at length last week. This morning, I want to look and turn and look at these covenantal obligations. So if the promises are, I will preserve the earth, universal, so that I might send the seed of the woman to save man, particular, if those are the promises of the covenant with Noah, this morning, I want to look at the obligations. What are the obligations given to Noah and to his sons? I want to consider the covenant obligations placed on man in the Noahic covenant. Now, we're going to look at those obligations this week and next week. So while I planned to dig all the way into all these specific obligations, I decided this morning that I needed to spend time first on the gracious context in which these commands are given. I need to spend time there first. What do I mean by that? Children, you likely understand this. Kids, you probably get this, at least if you're in the context of a Christian home with godly parents, parents who are loving and who are kind, then you have a kind of taste of what obedience looks like in the context of a gracious household. You have a sense of that. When your parents love you and are kind to you, then you know that their love for you came before 
their commands to you. You know that they love you and give you commands for your good. And if your heart is right toward your parents and the Lord, then their kindness to you makes you want to obey them. I've told this story before. When Jared, my son, was young, maybe 9, 10 years old, he had done something disobedient. I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't some huge act of disobedience, but he struggles more with guilt. So he felt fairly guilty about it. In fact, he felt terribly guilty. And as was the case when the kids were disobedient, I went into his room to talk to him. I'd send them to the room and say, go sit there and think about it a minute, and then I'm going to come in and speak with you. And I went in and spoke with him, and, and which is the way I always handle discipline, and I won't go into all of that discipline, but the point is I handled that discipline, and then I spoke to him about the gospel and the forgiveness he can know in Christ if he's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I told him, I love you, bud. And I'll never forget this. When I said I love you, he responded with this. How could you love me since I did this? Look at what I did. How could you love me? And I said to him, I love you because you're my son. Not because you've always been obedient. And he said to me, Dad, that makes me want to be just like you. This gives us an idea of the context of the obligations or the commands given to Noah here. With that said, this morning I want to look at first that gracious context in which Noah received these blessed obligations. And then secondly, here's what I want to do by way of sort of a pastoral application. I want to look at three reasons... We often don't see God's commands as blessings. There's sort of, if you will, there's more than this, but I'm going to go through three maladies, if you will, of the heart and soul that lead us to thinking of commands as something other than a blessing. So let's look first at the gracious context in which Noah received these blessed obligations. Look again at Genesis 9-1, and I want to look at the blessed obligation or the blessed command first. And God blessed Noah... You say, what was the blessing? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I want you to note how the Lord blessed Noah. He blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The Lord blessed Noah and his sons with commands. He blessed them with obligations. You saw this with Adam as well. Look back at Genesis 1.28, and we'll consider this connection a bit more next week as well. But look at Genesis 1.28. God has made man in his own image, male and female. He created them. And look at verse 28 of chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God blesses them, and in context, the blessing is these commands. Go to Genesis chapter 12. We'll see the same sort of pattern with Abraham. We'll look briefly at chapter 12 and 17. Chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, To the land that I will show you, there's a command, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look over at Genesis 17, 1 and 2. You'll see somewhat of what this blessing looks like as he goes out again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless. There is obedience that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And then he's going to go on what that's going to look like. You're going to see this as well in the covenant with Israel. Go to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. You're going to see both their commands or their obligations as well as, if you will, their blessings tied together. 
Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. We see these covenant obligations and their blessings being tightly tied together in Genesis 1.28, in Genesis 9.1, in Genesis 12.1 and 17. In other words, in the covenant with Adam, in the covenant with Noah, in the covenant with Abraham, in the covenant with Israel or the Mosaic covenant. You're going to see it again, by the way, in the new covenant, people of God. Remember, in the new covenant, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. I'm going to put a new spirit within you and... I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes, to keep my commands. I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you want to walk in God's commands. But look most specifically at Hebrews chapter 6. You'll see this tied. You can see it in a variety of other New Testament passages, but I'm going to pick this one for this morning and look at verse 4. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, Hebrews 6 verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to what? To restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Now I spent... A lot of time on this when I preach through Hebrews, you can go listen to those sermons. But look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Here's the basic summary of this passage. There are false professors in the church. They look like the real deal. They even share in many external blessings. But they do not produce the fruit of righteousness. The true believers in the church are those who produce the fruit of righteousness. Those who walk in faith and obedience and therefore are producing that fruit and receiving that blessing. Those who do not produce the fruit of righteousness are false professors. They bear thorns and thistles. And they're to be cast out. Their end is to be burned. In other words, they lack the grace of saving faith. And thus the corresponding grace of true repentance that bears fruit in obedience. I could produce several more passages like this in every biblical covenant. And as you read these passages, you will see that covenant obligations or covenant commands are closely tied together with covenant blessings. Closely tied together. Now, when we see covenant obligations and covenant blessings tied together with Adam in the garden, we don't really trip up over it. We see the tie between those two and we go, yeah, of course. The Lord could do this with Adam. He could tie his obedience and the blessings together because Adam did not have original sin. Adam had not yet fallen into sin. Thus, Adam was already rightly related to the Lord. He was in union and communion with God, and Adam had the ability to please God. So, of course, he can tie covenant obligations and blessings together. But here's the problem. In Adam's fall, sin we all. We're all fallen sinners. Our minds are set on the flesh. And what does Paul say about us? What does he say about us? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law or his commands or the obligations. Indeed, it cannot. Cannot. The heart and mind of sinful man, fallen man, you and I in our estate as those conceived and born in sin, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We can't. Those who are in the flesh, those of us in the state in which we were born, cannot please God. Not just permissively, may not please God. Cannot. You are not able. You understand the difference. You ask your parents, can I go to the restroom? And they say, you can, 
but may you? And they're distinguishing between what? Your ability to go to the restroom, clearly you're able, and the permission that you have to go to the restroom. Yes, you may. This does not say that we do not submit to God's law because we may not, we're not permitted to, but because we're not able to. We cannot please God. So if covenant blessings and covenant obligations or commands are tied together in the way that we see in all these covenants, then how can any of us be blessed? How can any of us be blessed? Listen, you know that's true because you hear it. Blessed is the man. Now, who's the blessed man? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is the blessed man. But I was born a sinner and a scoffer. I was born as a man with a heart that could not keep God's law. If the blessed man is the one who stands not in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and I'm not in my natural state that man, how can I ever be blessed? How can that be the case for me? Are we not all therefore forever trapped under the curse? Is there any way to be saved? Does this not condemn us all to a kind of hopeless legalism? I tie those two words together on purpose. Hopeless legalism. Does not this trap us under an impossible standard of a life in which we have to obey to be blessed? Well, beloved, this is where you have to read the text more closely. It is true. It is true that sinless Adam, unfallen Adam, was able to be obedient. It is also true that man is now corrupt and guilty in Adam and unable unable to be obedient from the heart. Therefore, you should not miss the covenantal context in which God issues this command and ties it to the blessings. Please do not miss this order. It is in the missing of this order that almost all of Christianity in its understanding of law and gospel becomes disordered. Please don't miss it. In Genesis 3.15, God promises, this is in the face of the fall of man and in the curse upon him, God graciously, due to no merit in man, due to nothing good that man has done, but in the face of man's rebellion and wickedness, God graciously promises to send the seed of the woman to save his people. God is promising grace to his people. We often refer to this covenant as the covenant of grace. Further, we see that grace not only promised to come in the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, but we see as that promise begins to be unfolded more clearly, we see it promised specifically to Noah. So in Genesis 5, 28 and 29, we learn prophetically through Noah's father that the Lord has elected him and set him apart to bring the seed of the woman through him. He is the one who, through whom the Lord will bring rest to the ground. In Genesis 6, 8, we see that show up in Noah's life. As we hear about this wicked world, we also hear this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord then told Noah he would make good on his prior covenant to save him through the seed of the woman, to save both him and his family. The Lord then saves Noah on the ark 
through the flood and brings him to the mountains of Ararat. And Noah builds an altar and offers an atoning sacrifice for his sins and the sins of his family. Because Noah knew he was a sinner. Noah knew his family were sinners. And the Lord says of Noah and his family that the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. And for that reason, the Lord promises grace to Noah. Did you just hear what I said? The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And for that reason, God promises grace to Noah. I just want you to stop and chew on that for a minute. You are evil. The intentions of your heart are evil from your youth, from conception. The intentions of your heart are evil. God has every right. In fact, he's demonstrated not only the right, but the willingness to judge evil in the flood that he brings upon the earth. Yet, in the case of Noah, God says, for the intention of man's heart is only evil from his youth. And therefore, I'm going to promise grace to him. The Lord will preserve the earth and through Noah bring the seed of the woman to save his people. There's a universal aspect. He'll preserve and be patient with the earth. But there's a particular aspect so that he might send the seed of the woman who will save his people. Note in both the fall when we first hear the promise of the covenant of grace, when we first hear it, in that fallen scene, we've done nothing but rebel and act wickedly against the Lord who's been good to us. And in the face of that, the Lord promises grace. In the face of the intention of Noah and his family, that's the only people alive in Genesis 8.21 when the Lord says this, that the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. In the face of that, the Lord promises grace, both in the preservation of all mankind universally and specifically so that he might bring about salvation in the seed of the woman. Please catch this order. The Lord has been kind to Noah. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Christ alone, Noah is rightly related to the Lord. Therefore, Noah ought to live this way. The context here is not, do this, Noah, and then I will bless you with covenantal promises. It is, I have made covenantal promises to you. You are blessed by me. Now do this. And as you do, you will know your blessings more fully. Noah's family is fallen and sinful, and yet the Lord graciously covenants with Noah and his sons. He blesses them and then says, after he blessed them, now do this. We will see this with Abraham, with Israel, with the new covenant church. He redeems us, and then he says, now do this. He blesses them and says, now do this. This is always Please hear this. This is always the order after the fall. Always. God elects. God calls. God redeems. God commands. And God gives what he commands. And our experience of our blessing in him grows in the doing of what he commands. But yes, in every covenant, the blessings and the obligations are intimately tied together. In every covenant. And yes, in every covenant, it is only those, please hear this, it is only those who keep the obligations that are blessed. It's only them. 
You guys can see this in Genesis 9. As Ham does not keep the obligations and is cursed. Noah and Shem and Japheth are blessed. And yes, in every covenant, please hear me say this again. In every covenant, it is only those who keep the obligations who are blessed. But, but after the fall of man, no one, no one, you know how many people? Nobody. No one can keep the covenant obligations. No one can. And thus receive the blessings. Now here comes the exception clause. So I gave you a universal negative. Let me give you the positive statement. Only those who keep the covenant commands are blessed. There's a positive. Now, you ready for the negative statement? No one, universal negative, no one can keep the covenant obligations or commands. No one. Here comes the exception clause. Third phrase, the exception clause. Except those to whom God has shown grace in Christ. Now you see this play out in biblical history. While God blesses Noah and his sons here, ultimately only Noah, Shem, and Japheth actually know these blessings. Ham's disobedient, wicked, and is cursed. God blessed Isaac, Abraham's son, but not Ishmael. Also Abraham's son. God blessed Jacob, Isaac's son, but not Esau. Also Isaac's son. God blessed the remnant of Israel like Joshua and Caleb, but not the majority of those in the first generation who were unbelieving and disobedient and fell in the wilderness. God blessed Elijah and the remnant chosen by grace. You can see that, by the way, in Romans 11. But not the majority of Israel who had turned to idolatry. Now here's our question. What is the difference? So this is the key question. What is the difference between those who keep the covenant obligations and those who do not. What distinguishes covenant keepers and covenant breakers? What distinguishes them? Here's the answer. You ready? God's grace. What distinguishes covenant keepers from covenant breakers? Answer, God's grace. Beloved, God's grace is found in a person. It's not just this stuff that kind of gets thrown out there like some kind of Roman Catholic priest just doling out grace through various means that are concretized in water or whatever. But God's grace is a person. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, I want you to hear this because it's so important you know this. Christ is the obedient man in whom we are blessed. Christ is the obedient man in whom we are blessed. Christ kept the precept and the penalty of the law for us. What do I mean by that? Adam had his blessings tied up with his obedience, and Adam violated God's covenant. He was a covenant breaker, And Adam was then under the curse, and God made a blessed promise to him to save him in the second Adam, the seed of the woman. And we need to understand this. Anyone who is saved is saved in that second Adam, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. The first Adam failed to keep the covenant obligations. The second Adam did not. He kept both the precept, the commands of the covenant and the penalty. In other words, we violated it and instead of us being punished for its violation, Christ is punished for its violation in our place. Look at Psalm 1 briefly. I want you to see Psalm 1 and 2 together because they're likely supposed to come together. And you'll see, I hope, I hope you'll see it. Blessed is the man. By the way, this is the singular 
Hebrew word for man. Sadly, it seems to be, in some contemporary translation, it's like, blessed are those. And they pluralize it, and they want to make it gender inclusive, and they make a mess, I think, of what's happening here as to its pointing to Christ. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now look, let's hear about the wicked and their ways and their counsel. You ready? Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Listen to the language. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or a Messiah saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Listen, blessed is the man who walks in godliness and righteousness all the days of his life. The problem is the wicked man is cursed and will never enter the place where only the blessed man may enter. And here's the issue. Who are the wicked man? The nations. Who does that include? The nations. The wicked men who plot against the Lord and his Messiah. And the Lord will terrify them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Verse 6, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he's bringing us to the messianic king. I will tell of the decree. Here's the king on Zion, by the way, speaking. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, what is the Lord's Messiah going to do? He's going to exercise the Lord's wrath against all those opposed to the Lord. And those who are not opposed to the Lord are the blessed man who walk in holiness all their lives. How many of you does that include? None. So notice where it goes from here. Now therefore, O kings, be wise... Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now notice, kiss the son, that's honor him. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now notice, blessed, blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The blessed man is the one who takes refuge in the son, the only Truly blessed man. Jesus is the fruitful tree who yields abundant fruit. Jesus is the one who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, but delighted in the law of the Lord. And if we're united to him in the spirit by faith, then we are the blessed man in him, in the second Adam. Through faith in Christ, all that's mine my sin. Think about marriage. You get married, all that you have belongs to your spouse and all that your spouse has belongs to you. So happens in marriage. Well, in Christ, when I'm united to him through faith and in the spirit, all that I have, all my wicked deeds, all my unrighteousness is his. He drinks that cup of wrath in my place on the cross. And all that he has, all his good works and well-doing and righteousness, law-keeping, are mine. They're mine. Through faith in Christ, all that is mine is his. And all that is his is mine. Beloved, we must, we must understand this. 
after man descends into sin, if God does not give what God commands, then we are all hopeless and damned. But God gives what he commands in spades by sending the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, to save us. In every covenant after the fall of man, in every covenant after the fall of man, the only people keeping the covenant are those whom God has saved by the grace of God in Christ. Those who are elect, the remnant of God's people. The fatherly graciously elects his people in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him, adopted as sons to the praise of his glorious grace. That's a summary, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. The father has graciously sent his son to accomplish our redemption in his life, death, and resurrection, Ephesians 1, 7 through 13. And the father and the son graciously send the Holy Spirit to apply that redemptive work to us, Ephesians 1.14. This is all of the Father, by the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. The triune Lord has done all of this. What have you done but received grace upon grace in Christ? Beloved, the Lord decreed to send Jesus to save sinful you before the foundation of the world. He sent Jesus to save you from your sins. In our case, 2,000 years before we were even born. He sent preachers to announce that good news to you. He sent his Holy Spirit so that you might hear that preached good news. And you might have the grace of faith and new life in Christ. He did all this for you, a sinner. A sinner. And as your Lord and Savior, Jesus now says, as your Lord and Savior, Jesus now says, do this. Do this. Thus, all the obligations the Lord places upon his covenant people are blessed obligations. Blessed commands. I labor this point. Because apart from the Lord first reconciling us in Christ, the covenant obligations would only be burdensome. And would only lead us further into the power of the curse. The law, in and of itself, though holy, righteous, and good, the law cannot save. It can only curse. We can only know the blessed obligations if we've been redeemed by the Lord in Christ. That's it. And Noah is trusting in the seed of the woman. The Lord has saved Noah from the flood. And now the Lord blesses him with covenantal obligations. Because the Lord is also saved ultimately from his sins. The ultimate judgment of God. We see that in Hebrews 11 quite clearly. He believed in the Christ. Please hear this. I know that when the Lord blesses us with covenant obligations... The notion that obligations or commands or blessings grates against our human sensibilities, doesn't it? We do not see obligations as a blessing. We see them as restrictive and life-killing in some way. But God's commandments are a blessing for those who are his people. They're a blessing. Finding wisdom and understanding, according to Proverbs, in God's commandments is a blessing. Listen to what James, for example, says. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Listen to Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Being God's covenant people... Walking in obedience to him is where true liberty and happiness and blessedness is found. If you do not know the blessing of God's law, the covenant obligations, then you likely suffer from one of three maladies. And here's the application I want to make. These maladies really are a second major point. Three reasons that we do not often see God's commands as blessings. 
That's what I want to get into. Three reasons we don't often see God's commands as blessings, or maybe three maladies of the soul that keep us from seeing God's commands as blessings. Here's the first one. You keep thinking of God's law as a way to earn God's grace toward you. You keep thinking of God's law as a way to earn God's grace toward you. You think that by faithfully keeping all of God's law, you will merit a redeemed relation to the Lord. You commit the error of believing that the word of God says to you, do this and live. And you do not realize that Jesus has kept the law for you. That Jesus has redeemed you. That this has been done because the Father in love set his grace upon you before the foundation of the world. And thus you live constantly under the weight and burden of law-keeping as a way to be reconciled to the Lord and receive eternal life. But, beloved, please hear the order of grace. Please hear this gospel order. But God, after talking about how we're sinful, Paul says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, I want you to stop and chew on that for a second. You're by nature children of wrath, dead in your sins, following after the prince of the power of the air, by nature children of disobedience, etc. But God, being rich in mercy, because of all the obedience that you participated in, nope. But God, being rich in mercy, and what is the cause of his mercy toward you? Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the amazing good deeds that you have done. Nope. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you didn't get the point so far, Paul goes on. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Now, here comes the covenant obligations. You ready? After all that, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the order. You do not merit eternal life after the fall into sin. Rather, whoever has the Son has life. You've been redeemed. Eternal life is yours in Christ. God's law to you is not, in other words, or I should say, God's promise to you is not do this and live. God's promise to you is Christ has made you alive by grace. Now do this. Now do this. It is when you understand this that Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 really grabs a hold of you. Really grabs a hold of you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that's the first malady. We tend to live under the law as if we merit grace through it. The second malady is this. You're not a Christian. Some people are not believing. And so they see the law as a curse. They see it that way. If you're not a Christian, you rightly see the law as God's burden and curse upon you. 
because you're not reconciled to him. Thus the law is only condemnation for you. That's it. all it is for you. It sings to you that you're not enough. I know the culture keeps saying, you're enough. You're enough. Listen, I don't know why we are just, for lack of a more appropriate word, hellbent upon lying to ourselves. But we seem to be. You're enough. We all know it's not true. You all know you're not enough, don't you? It's a lie. Sings to you, though, that you are enough. And the law sings to you, you're not enough. The culture, you're enough. God's law, you are not. And by the way, the internal witness of your own heart, I know I'm not. You know it. And the remedy for your malady is, look to Christ and be saved. Look to Christ and be saved. Christ is our righteousness before God. He is enough. And he is yours by faith. Trust in him. Turn from your sins. And you will be saved. You will be saved. Now for the final malady, the third malady. Here's what it is. The first one is you live under the law as if you can merit grace by it. The second one is you're not a believer. So that's all the law can be for you is a curse. The third one is sort of, if you will, the middle ground. You are not growing in grace as you ought to. Believer, you're not growing in grace as you ought to. Now this is probably going to comprise most of the people in this room. I don't mean that most of you are not growing in grace. It's not a condemning statement. But when we struggle, this is what I mean for most of us is the case. If you're growing in grace, then your heart for Christ is enlarged. It's enlarged. And as your heart grows in love for the Lord, you see more and more that his commands are blessings. That's true in the marriage covenant, isn't it? Let's think about the marriage covenant. I was just at a wedding yesterday. Everyone at a wedding, every groom and bride, stand before each other smiling and happy and making vows. They're obligating themselves. I will, and I will, and I will, and, and I will too, and I will, and I will. And not one of them, hopefully, is saying, ugh, all these vows of things I have to do. What a burden. Marriage is a curse. Why am I even here? They're not saying that. Why not? Because their heart is filled with love for the other. And so they know that these marital obligations that they're participating in are a blessing. You can hardly wait to commit yourself to the other. But if you do not nurture your marriage, over time your hearts will grow cold and your covenant obligations that you once saw as a blessing when you entered them because of your great love for the person standing across from you, as your heart grows cold, those same obligations will begin to feel burdensome like a curse. Well, beloved, that's similar to the Christian life, is it not? If you do not exercise the means of grace that God has given to you to grow, then your heart will grow cold toward the Lord. And the more your love grows cold, the more his law seems like a burdensome curse rather than a blessing. And if this is happening to your own heart, that when you open up Psalm 119 and you hear about the blessing of the law of the Lord and you think, how could that be? It seems restrictive and like a curse to me then you need to repent. You repent. You need to turn from whatever works of the old creation you love, whether that's wicked entertainment. And I'll tell you, most of the young men that I run into, their hearts grow cold toward the Lord because of pornography. They continue in the wickedness of the world and they wonder why they feel distant from the Lord. And why his commands seem burdensome rather than a delight. You need to repent. You need to repent. There are other ways for your heart to grow cold. Not just pornography. Greed. Bitterness. 
envy, hatred, drunkenness, other forms of sexual morality, disobedience to parents. These things, if you participate in them, will cause your heart to grow cold. And you will begin to see God's law as a burden rather than a blessing. And you need to turn to Christ. You need to discipline yourself to employ the means of grace that God has given you for your growth. Now, what are the means of grace that he's given you? You put off all those worldly works. And as God's chosen dear ones, you put on righteousness. And how does that happen? You put yourself in the word. You not only hear it preached and read it, you meditate upon it day and night. You pray that the Lord would enlarge your heart and love toward him, would cause his word to transform your mind so that it is not conformed to the pattern of this wicked world. So you might do what is holy and acceptable, pleasing to him. You participate in the Lord's sacraments, baptism and the Lord's supper, so that you might see his grace visibly placed before you, that he's made all these promises to you, and that you've done nothing but sin, and now he's doing nothing to you but being gracious in his son, cleansing of you your sins, uniting you to himself, giving you grace upon grace. You sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know the first act of the heart filled by the Holy Spirit is? To sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You gather with the saints so that you might stir one another up to love and good deeds. And as your heart warms for Christ, you'll see his law as a blessing. You'll see it as the perfect law of liberty. You'll be able to say that it is a blessing to walk in accord with God's law, to find understanding there, and to strive for holiness. Not because you did anything to merit that blessing, but because it's been given to you in the only truly blessed man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as that one who's united to him through faith by the Spirit, you desire nothing more than to be like him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would work by your Spirit to help us understand Law and gospel to help us understand that as those fallen in Adam, we can only be redeemed in Christ. And it is only in Christ and by the Spirit through faith that we'll ever see your commands as a blessing. We pray for those here who do not believe in Christ that they would repent of their sins and turn to him and believe. We pray for those who see the law as nothing more than a way to merit grace and favor with you, that you would expel from their minds such wicked doctrine and help them look to Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith, their only Savior. And to see the law for what it is apart from Christ, it can only condemn. But in Christ, it is a gracious guide to be like him. Father, we pray for those of us who struggle as we often allow our hearts to grow cold because we continue in the wicked works of the old man, we pray that we would put those wicked works off and we would put on righteousness and holiness and true faith. We would do so by continually disciplining ourselves to exercise the means you have given us so that we might grow in grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.